there, there are certain ideas that I think which are very, uh, really very important, you know. Um, and um, for that, we have to go back and um, realize there's a certain question that we can ask. And that is that the Torah was given 2,448 years after the creation. That's a long time. That's 2448 years after the creation. So the question really is, is um, why, would, why would God give it so late after the creation of the world, you know? Especially since uh, in the beginning it says, Breshit. And Rashi says that with Reshit means with a beginning, that the Torah is called a beginning, which means that, and, uh, that it says that uh, God obviously created the world in order for people to observe the Torah. Uh, so if that's the case, why would, some, why would uh, God wait 2,448 years after the creation to give the Torah? You know, that, that really does not make sense. You know, imagine if somebody opens a business, you know, uh, and uh, so, you know, and he, want, and he begins to buy, uh, rent a store and get uh, inventory and so on, you know. And then it takes him about 10 years to open. Well, that wouldn't make sense either. In other words, if somebody wants to open something, then he obviously tries to do it as quick as possible. So the question then is, why would God wait 2,448 years for him to finally give the Torah at Matan Torah, when the Jews received it at Sinai? That is the question, you see. And the idea to that is a very important idea when you think about it. What exactly is Torah in a certain sense? Well, what Torah really is, I mean, there are many aspects of Torah, but what Torah is, is that it is a trigger. The mitzvot are triggers. In other words, they are triggering devices that allow infinite light, the presence of God, to come into the lower worlds. You see, and the Torah is the way you can do it. Uh, In other words, Essentially what the world is, is a place which is devoid of the presence of God. And what God wants is to come back into the, uh, into the lower worlds. And of course he wants mankind to do it. And uh, what, what he wants therefore, he obviously what he has to do is provide a way that people or mankind can bring him back or bring him down. You know, depending on how you want to look at it. So therefore, what he did is, the Torah, which are the mitzvot, Taryag, mitzvot, 613 commandments, is the way to bring God's presence into the Bria, into creation. And therefore, when you observe a commandment, in some way you are allowing a certain amount of divine flow into the creation. So, in many ways, that's what the Torah is, you see. And as such, the Torah would be called a trigger or a switch. It is the way you can bring God's presence back into the Bria. <clears throat> that's what the Torah is. Now, the question, therefore, is if that's the case, 
So then why wait 2,448 years if you need that trigger, if you need that switch to bring God back? Obviously, you can't wait around for 2,400 years, 2,448 years. It doesn't make sense, you see. In other words, if the the world was created, right, in order to have a tikkun, and a tikkun is to bring the presence of God back, a tikkun means a restoration, a rectification, then obviously, why didn't he do it? Why didn't he give it to Adam? Why didn't Adam have the Taryag mitzvot? Why wait until the Jews get out of Egypt, and then wait till Matan Torah, and then give the Torah at Sinai? That is the question. <clears throat> and the answer to that is that the Torah is a device that brings down the presence of God. But the question is, how much of the device do you need? You see, well, it all depends on what you do. If you want to dig a little hole, for instance, in the ground because you want to plant a seed, well, obviously you're not going to bring a steep shovel to dig a hole for a seed. That's what's called, you know, excessive. What you will do, however, is take, let's say, a a pick or what's called a hoe, you know, maybe a little shovel, to make a a little hole in the ground, and then you put the seed in. You don't need an excessive device in order to do it, because all you need to do is plant the seed. In many ways, that's exactly what happened. In the beginning, the presence of God was enormous. You see, there was very little concealment. And therefore, if there was very little concealment of the presence of God, well, how much would you really need uh, to bring God back? You didn't need much. And therefore, what God gave, initially speaking, was Torah. But interesting, because the hester, the concealment of God's presence, wasn't a lot, it was very little in fact, because if you remember, Adam Rishon spoke to God. And because he spoke to God, obviously the presence of God must have been incred- incredibly manifest in the world. So therefore, how much did he ever bring God back if he's already manifest uh, to such an extent, you see? So therefore, what God gave him is only really one mitzvah, or actually to a certain extent, the Midrash says it was the seven Noahide commandments. The seven mitzvahs commandments of Noah. Uh, that's what he gave him. But we know it really as one mitzvah, which is don't eat from that tree. And what's interesting is that he hadn't, had he not eaten from the tree, then that would have been sufficient. That would have been sufficient to bring God back in terms of the way God wants to come back, you see. Because there was very little concealment of the presence of God. There was very little hester in the presence of God. So therefore, you don't need a large device. You just need a small switch. And therefore, he gave him that one mitzvah. And that would, that would have done it. Had Adam done it, if he would have listened to God and not to eat from the tree then what would have happened is the world would have been filled with the presence of God. And that would have ushered in a messianic era. And Adam would have been the Mashiach. What happened? 
obviously Adam sinned. So the result of sin always is that God gets away, leaves. See, it's always where God leaves or he becomes concealed. In other words, the result of sin is always hester. It is hester of the presence of God, you see. And that's really what would have happened. So therefore, because Adam sinned, the concealment of God grew worse. In fact, we see that because it's interesting. In the beginning, God's presence was enormously manifest. And Adam Harishan realized the concept of which means that God is the supreme cause of everything. Supreme mover cause. And Adam saw that because he realized he was created on the sixth day and obviously it was all here before him. So he knew it wasn't him. So he realized the unbelievable power of God. That's what he realized on that first day. What he didn't realize is the concept of Enoid Mavadoi, that there is no other force in the world. In fact, there is no other existence really besides God. That's called Enoid Mavadoi, which means that besides God, there is nothing else. And that's what he realized, uh, that's what he didn't realize. And therefore, he made the mistake in thinking that maybe there's another existence existence, another type of being that exists independent of God. And that's what the Nachash, the snake, told him. That God told you not to eat from the tree because the tree really is the ultimate power source of God. You see, and the tree exists independent of God. Now, once Adam sinned, then God more, grew more distant. You see, <clears throat> in fact, what God told him is something very interesting. There was a series of curses that God, uh, you know, stated. One of them is, In the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. What exactly is that? Because Adam knew that everything comes from God. So the God said, because you ate from the tree and you believed that maybe there's another power source, therefore I will allow you to live in a reality where you will think that there are many power sources. In other words, you will think that you are the reason for your panasa, for your livelihood. And therefore, you're going to have to break through that illusion. You will have to see that that is not true. You see, and that in many ways becomes the avodah. So therefore, before that, he knew that God was the only power source, the only cause. But now God concealed himself and he said, well, the only way you're going to make a living is if you go out to work. And therefore, you will fall into a false belief, the illusion that you do things and that causes you to have a livelihood. But in reality, of course, that's not true. Everything a man does, every idea that he has to make a living, doesn't make a difference. It's only there because God puts it in his mind. But since God concealed himself because of the sin of Adam, you see, so therefore he is now under the illusion that he does everything. And therefore his new avodah is that he has to break through that illusion and realize that God 
is the Ein Koyach Ache, as it says. There is no other force. There is no other cause. You see? That's a very important idea. So therefore, the Hester increased. That's what happened. And that was measure for measure. You see? Since you think there's another force, namely the tree, then you will subject it to that concealment of who I am. That there are other forces, which of course is false. Uh, so the Avodah is that you must see that I am the only force. You see, that is the Avodah. Therefore, Adam was now subjected to a greater hester. There was a much greater concealment of the Divine Presence. Now, if that was the case, you see, that would mean that God would have to give him a greater switch, a greater trigger. You see, he would now have to have a greater instrument in order to remove the concealment or the hester. And therefore, that's what God gave him, you see. So what he did is he increased the mitzvot, basically, to seven, which is the seven Noachite laws. So therefore, Adam would now have a more mitzvot because the darkness got greater by his own acts. So therefore, the response to that, the din to that, is that you now need a greater device to uncover the truth. Therefore, automatically, the Torah went basically from one mitzvah to seven. You see? So, what the Torah does is the Torah conforms to the amount of darkness. That's what happens. So, since Adam created a greater darkness because of his sin, therefore the Torah now has to conform to that darkness. And it has to enable man to be able to do a greater amount of believing in God. You see. And now, as time went on, of course, then it became worse. So, after 2,000 years, man sinned. So, in the first 10 generations, you had Noah. And the world was so bad that God decided to destroy it. The next 10 generations, same thing. And instead of destroying the world, what God did is that He decided to spread mankind throughout the entire world. So, as a result of that, mankind was now spread throughout the entire world <clears throat> you see and as we, therefore uh, which is interesting is if that's the case that means there's a greater hester but we know if there's a greater hester what has to happen then automatically the mitzvot have to increase because the more hester the more concealment of God the more the darkness is the greater is the amount of Torah no, it's not that Torah changes, but the necessity of more mitzvot is added because it is now required to dispel or remove much greater concealment or much greater darkness, you see. And that's what happened. So therefore, Avraham Avinu, who came after the uh, Tower of Babel, Megdal Bovel, he now began to observe the Torah, but in the form of 613. In fact, the rabbis tell us that Avraham Avinu observed the entire Torah, but without being commanded, you see. But the question is, why would he have to observe 613 commandments? 
And the answer is because the darkness grew so great that you would need more commandments to bring God back. But you would not have to have it commanded. He just knew that these were the mitzvot that are very important. That each one in some way is a trigger for the, for the uh, Shekhinah, for the Divine Presence. So he observed it, <clears throat> you see. In fact, not only Avraham, you find Yitzchak, you find Yaakov. You know, when Yaakov um, uh, is about to meet Esav, you know, so he's trying to convince Esav not to kill him. So he says, In loving Garti, I live with Lovan, you see. And I, I observe the commandments or whatever. So Rashi points out that Garti, in loving Garti, I have lived with Lavan. Garti is the word I have lived. Garti is the same letters as Taryag. 613, that's the numerical value of the word Taryag. But what that means, which is interesting, is that means if it's 613, Taryag, exactly. That means that Yaakov also observed the 613 commandments. You see, why? Uh, because darkness grew. As mankind sinned more and more, darkness grew. But <clears throat> you didn't have to observe the commandments in the form of being commanded. Because they were not commanded. This was before the Torah. All you had to do was, you know, to realize that there are many types of triggers that will bring in divine light. And that's why Yaakov observed the Taryag. As time went on, the darkness grew greater and greater. The nations of the world really were steeped in Abu Zorah. They were tremendously steeped in idol worship and all kinds of immorality and uh, they were uh, immoral and so on. Uh, so therefore, that would mean that if the Jews now, who, who are now assigned to the Tikkun, they would have to have a Torah, which is 613, but that 613 mitzvot would have to be commanded. You see. Now what's interesting is that if you do a mitzvah because you are commanded to do, it is greater than if you do a mitzvah without it being commanded. You see. And uh, that's an interesting concept. Why would that be? And the idea is that something which you are not commanded to do, then there's no what's called the Yetzirah. There's no desire not to do it. You see? You're not commanded to do it. If you want, you can do it. If you don't want, you don't do it. <clears throat> but as soon as somebody says you must do something, immediately the person begins to think, well, wait a minute, who is he? You know? Who is he to tell me what to do? I'm also somebody. You see? So what a command does, it automatically raises your desire not to do it. Therefore, if you overcome that desire, you get a greater mitzvah, you see. In fact, it is a, uh, one of the uh, sages, one of the, the uh, uh, Amaroim in the Gemara says, he was, his name was Rav Yosef and he was blind. And the idea is that a blind man in many ways is exempt for all the, from all the mitzvot because he can't see. So he used to think, well, that means he's greater than the regular Jew. Why? Because he does the mitzvah without being commanded. 
So that therefore means that he should be rewarded in even a greater way than the people who do it because they're commanded. Look, they're commanded, so that's why they do it. But I do it because I believe in it, even if I'm not commanded. But then there was somebody who did a drasha, and he said, no, it's much greater to do a, a, a mitzvah if you are commanded than if you are not commanded. Why? Like I just said. Because what bothers a person is when he's ordered to do something, no matter what it is. You see, so when a person is ordered to, take, to, to observe a commandment, a mitzvah, uh, there's a much gr- a greater evil inclination to rebel and to say, no, I don't want to do this. Therefore, a person has to fight that much more than if the mitzvah was not commanded. And we know that when you have to fight to do a mitzvah, the reward is much greater, much greater, because you have to overcome the Yetzirah. You have to overcome a tremendous inclination not to do the mitzvah, you see. Uh, therefore, when we say that the reward is much greater, what that means is therefore is that the amount of awe, the amount of holiness, or the amount of the presence of God comes down much greater, because that's what it means. In other words, the greater the struggle, the greater the reward. The greater the reward, the greater is the appearance of God. You see? So therefore, what God decided is instead of, since the Hester is so great, because in the land of Egypt and all over the world, you know, it was really terrible. There was a tremendous amount of avodah zarah, idol worship. So God decided that he would now give the Jewish people, who are the ones who have to do it, he was going to give them the mitzvot, but not in the form of no commandment. It was a, a sort of like a, an etzah toiva. means a good suggestion, you know, by the way. Uh, you know, if you want, you could do it. And obviously, if you don't want, you don't have to do it. What he would now do is give the mitzvot in a form which they are commanded. That would increase incredibly the struggle to do the mitzvah. And if it would increase the struggle, it would increase the reward. In fact, that's what it says in the Gemara. The fumtsaro, according to the struggle, the pain of doing a mitzvah, agro is the reward. Now what that means is not only is that the reward, but what that means, of course, is that the tikkun is much greater because you've struggled and you won. Therefore the tikkun, which is the the fact that God comes back into the creation, into this world, is much greater. So therefore, like I say, what God decided is to give the Jewish people the Torah in the form of being commanded. And as a result of that, they would now bring back God, and it would be a much greater device to remove the concealment of the presence of God. Because now, every time they did a mitzvah, God would come back in a much greater way than before. You see. So therefore, because the hester was so great, therefore God decided to give the mitzvah in the form of a commandment. And that, of course, leads us to Matan Torah. Uh, And now you understand.
Why does God have to give the Torah the commandment? You know, when they already were doing it, you know, like I say, Abraham, Yaakov, and I imagine a lot of the Jews maybe were also doing a lot of the mitzvot. But what God wanted is a greater amount of presence of God, tikkun, which would come only if they were commanded, and then the struggle would be much worse. And because of that, then, of course, they would um, be able to do that. That's a very important idea, you see. Now, what happened as the generations grew further and further, the sinning of the Jews became more and more, you see. They sinned, they worshipped Avodah Zarah, and they did other sins. So therefore, instead of bringing down the presence of God, what happened is they removed the presence of God. Much greater, you see. <clears throat> so it looks like, you know, uh-oh, there's a problem here. Because remember, if you can do something which will bring God back in a greater way, then if you sin against that commandment, you will remove God in a much greater way. You see? Same idea. It means if you can go in a positive way, then you can do the same equal distance in a negative way. So the problem was is that the Jews, many times, you know, they did sins. So ultimately what God decided, and the Jews realized that, is that you need to enact new mitzvot, which not will be biblical, they will be rabbinical. And that's the seichol. That is the logic of all those mitzvot midrabanan, all those rabbinical mitzvot that we do. Half the Shulchan Aruch is mitzvot which are only dirabanan. They're from the Sanhedrin, the great Supreme Court, you see. And they're not biblical commandments, although all of the rabbinical commandments really ultimately derive, obviously, or rather all the rabbinical mitzvot, they derive from the biblical. <clears throat> but why did the Chazal, why did the Sanhedrin do that? Because you needed a greater shovel. Jews sin, so therefore the God moves out of the Bria more and more. That's the case. <clears throat> you need a greater device or instrument to bring God back. And therefore you need more mitzvot b'midrabanan. You see? So that's the logic of the derabonon. So what the, the, the rabbis, the, rabbin, the rabbis studied, of course they knew the mitzvot, and they understood the spirit of each mitzvah. You know, what it really means and so on. You know, what does God really want? So even though God, you know, said, nope, I'm going to give a commandment, but they realized that the spirit of the law, that's what it's called, is deeper than just a mitzvah. You see, except God did not command the spirit. He just commanded the immediate physical act. But they realize what the true spiritual understanding of the mitzvah is, and therefore they increased the, um, uh, the mitzvot, which they did rabbinically. You see, you know, uh, for instance, what's a good example, you know? Uh, there's a whole concept of mukseh. Mukseh is things that you cannot move on Shabbat, and there are many different types that you cannot move because, uh, and the question is, that's rabbinical. Why did they do that? Because they realized that the whole concept of Shabbat is to cease 
from doing work, labor. And there are 39 categories of labor that you have to cease from, you see. So what they realize is that that's a very important way to bring God back, uh, the whole concept of what Shabbat really is, which I could talk about on a future date. So what they did is they added to that, because they said that, well, you know, there are many things that really are permitted according to the Torah. But if we allow them to be true, which means you can do them, uh, you may come to actually violate a commandment. So what they did is they added to the Torah that you, in order to make sure that you wouldn't violate the Torah, they forbade or prohibited mitzvah or uh, acts which are permitted. You see, all these things basically are permitted to move, you know, but they were afraid that if you're allowed to move them, you're going to come to do a melacha, a forbidden act with them. See? So therefore they increased the amount of mitzvot. So now there are many things that you cannot even move besides doing a melacha. You cannot even move it. So the struggle that you, that, the struggle that you have now in order not to move it, you see, is now a tikkun will bring down the ore, the Kedusha, the Divine Presence, in a much greater way, you see. And therefore the Chazal studied each commandment, and whenever they felt, the Biblical commandment, Tariyag Mitzvot, and whenever they felt that it was necessary, right, to bring down more ore, you see, they would add it. So now the struggle becomes compounded, because not only do you have to have struggle not to do an Avera, a violation, Avera, a sin, <clears throat> you now have to struggle, you know, to avoid uh, being involved in something that really is permitted, but may lead you to become an Avera. You see. <clears throat> and therefore, you are now struggling with much more than 613 commandments. You are struggling with all the rabbinical decrees and therefore, your access or your ability to bring down the divine light, the presence of God, which of course is the Shekhinah, <clears throat> is much greater. And the reason for this is because of the Hester. Because the more Jews sin, the greater is the Hester. Well, the greater the Hester, then we have to increase the power of the trigger to bring it down. You see, that's the way it works. Now, what's interesting is that's the rabbinical addition to the Tariyag Mitzvot. But as generations sinned more and more, you see, then there became a necessity to add certain ideas even to the rabbinicals. And what is that? That is called minhag, custom, traditions. And what happened was is that each community Many, each community has their own customs, you see. For instance, you have the Svardim. They have, you know, they have their own customs. And among the Svardim themselves, you have different, you know, the different groups of Svardim. You have Syrian customs. You probably have Moroccan customs. You have Italian customs, Egyptian customs, and so on. So it, what happened is each community added you know, not commandments, but they added 
restrictions or things that you have to do in order to increase the ability to do the tikkun. For instance, the Ashkenazim, you know, you're not allowed to eat grain, the five grains, right? Wheat, barley, rye, oats, and spelt. Obviously, you cannot eat them on Pesach. You cannot make matzah from I mean, you can make matzah from them, obviously. But if, uh, if they became, uh, become chomets, you cannot eat. But what Chazal say is you obviously cannot chomets. You cannot eat these things, you know, in their form that they can be chomets. <clears throat> but the Ashkenazim felt that that wasn't far enough. Why? Because there are many grains that look like wheat or barley or rye, oats, and spelt. For instance, rice looks like a grain. You know, uh, and, 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 and so on, or peas, or, uh, or, or uh, nuts, whatever. So what the Ashkenazim did is in order to avoid people coming to permit uh, grain, because if you permit, let's say, rice, you may come to eat grain, because they look the same. So a guy can say, well, why can't I eat uh, grain? I can eat rice. So what they did is they prohibited the rice. You see, that's called kidneys which is an Ashkenazi Chumrah, or Minhag, you see. And the reason for that, again, uh, is they added to the Tayag, <clears throat> which means they increased the struggle. And like I said, what the formula is, you increase the struggle, you increase the reward. Like it says, the Fumtsaro Agro, according to the struggle, is the reward. But we know that if you increase the reward, then essentially what you do is what? You increase the amount of light, of divine presence that comes down. Because in the end, it's all about struggling to do the will of God. And if the reason why you are doing this custom, this tradition, let's say not eating, let's say rice, or other forms of kidneys, right? If the reason why you're doing it is in order to avoid doing the Avera, which is to eat chametz, then that will bring down the presence of God. You see, much greater than just the original prohibition of not to eat grain. That is chametz. You see? Uh, so therefore, look at what we have, which is fascinating. We actually have an evolution here. An evolution of Torah. That, not that Torah changes you see. But since Torah is really a switch or a trigger that will remove the hester, the darkness, you see. So therefore it changes based on the times. But what is the major determinant of why it changes? And the answer is, how much hester is there? How much concealment of the presence of God is there? How much darkness is there? So it's fascinating. You see? <clears throat> and therefore we realize an amazing thing. That Torah really does what? It changes. It, it becomes more. It increases. In order to address the Hester. The greater the Hester, the greater the amount of struggle to do the will of God. And we see therefore that this struggle is basically in many different ways. Right? In the beginning there was one mitzvah right? Then there became seven. Then there became Taryag without being in the form of a commandment. 
Then they became Tariag in the form of a commandment, you see. Then there became rabbinical ideas, you see. And then after that, it became what's called customs, you see. So look how many times it changed. But not that it changed in the sense that there's, there's always a Tariag. There's always the biblical 613 commandments that we know. You see, but it is now the increased struggle to observe the mitzvot of the Torah, which includes the Midra, the Midra Banan, the rabbinical ordinances and decrees. It increased with the, uh, the uh, customs and the traditions of different communities. You see, and now you understand a very important idea. You see, when I ask the question, wait a minute, why would God wait 2,448 years after the creation to give the Torah if the only device to bring God back is to do the will of God through the Torah? So why would he wait almost one-third of the history of the world? Actually, it's, it's more than one-third of the history of the world, which will be 6,000 years. And the answer to that is he didn't. Odomarishan had the Torah, but it was in the form of one commandment. That is the Torah. The Torah is God issues a command, right? And you have to struggle to do that command. You see? That is the Torah. Now, how many mitzvot there are depends on how much concealment of God there is. How much concealment of God there is all depends on what? It depends on the sin, the sins. How many times do you violate this? You see, <clears throat> so we now realize something very important, that any time you do something, because whether it be the, the law of God, or the will of God, or the spirit of the law, if you are involved in a struggle to do God's will, no matter what the act is, basically, you will be, bring down a tremendous amount of awe. <clears throat> and that is why, in a certain way, the last, if you want to call it evolution of the Torah, is called Chumrah, stringency. Now, a stringency is maybe for each individual can make his own stringencies. You know, it's not at all incumbent on the tzibur, on the public. But, for instance, a person can have a stringency. You know, it's not a mitzvah. It's not a rabbinical, you see. It's not even uh, a custom. But a person may have a stringency that he imposed on himself. You see? But what that happens is that in a certain way becomes part of the Torah. Even though it's, it's really just for the individual himself. You see? For instance, many people will go to the mikvah right? Mikveh on a daily basis. Now, you don't have to do that, right? So then why should a person do that? Because a person, in certain sense, wants to be tahor. He wants to be purified from tum'ah, which is an impurity of the spirit. You see, <clears throat> now there is no commandment to do that at all. You know, I mean, obviously for certain things you have to do that. For instance, you know, you know if you want to go uh, um, let's say into the Beit HaMikdash 
So you can't do that unless you go to the mikveh. <clears throat> Those are laws. But a stringency to, to go into a mikveh every day is basically what's called a chumrah. It's not necessary to do that, you see. But if it is done because you want to do that, because you want that to be some type of an additional struggle to show how much you love God, you see, then that is also considered a tikkun device. It is a trigger to bring down ore. That's an amazing concept. Look how extensive the Torah really has become. You see. And this is because of the incredible amount of hester that the, uh, uh, that the uh, Jews in their sins have done. Now, in the end of time, in the Messianic era, you see, <clears throat> then there will be no mitzvot, basically. Very few. Why? Because there's no more struggle. Think about it. What makes it struggle? What makes the struggle? And the answer is the Satan. But in the Messianic era, especially at the time of the Mashiach ben David, the Satan will either be killed, annihilated, or he will change completely. No more will his job be to seduce anybody. So if that's the case, when you do a mitzvah, there's no struggle at all. Because there's no Yetzirah. Well, if that's the case, if there's no struggle, right, then there's no reward. If there's no reward, then there is no tikkun. And that makes sense. Because when Mashiach ben David comes, the tikkun will have been complete. You see. And therefore, there is no more necessity, basically, for the whole shulchan arach, aruch, to be done because of a struggle. Because the tikkun is complete. And the only reason why you need the Torah in the form of a mitzvah is because to bring down the hester, you see? And that will all be gone. It's an amazing concept. No more mitzvot. Why? Because there's no necessity for tikkun. Now, that doesn't mean that things won't be commemorated. But they won't be commemorated in terms of its mitzvah, you see? There are certain holidays that will be kept. The Chazal tells us that Purim will be kept. So does that mean that if I do a mitzvah on Purim, I will uh, do a tikkun? And the answer is no. <clears throat> there is no necessity for a tikkun device, for an instrument to do the tikkun, because there is no hester, because the Mashiach will have revealed everything. You see? So that's really what happens. And now you understand that God did not wait 2,448 years to give the Torah. It's true that He gave the Torah, but He gave it to Adam in, in the form of basically one mitzvah. Because that's all the Hester there was. He didn't need anything else, you see. <clears throat> but it's only 2,448 years later that God gave the Torah in the form of a commandment, a tzivoy. Because that's what Jews needed to un undo all the tremendous darkness and concealment of the presence of God. You see how it works. What I've told you is a very important concept which most people do not realize. And that is the evolution or the change of the Torah. Not that the Torah changes in, its, in essence. It doesn't. 
Because the Torah in this world is always a requirement to struggle and to do the will of God. But the amount of struggle changes, you see. And that's what happens. And that is why we have so many mitzvot, why we have so many rabbinical decrees, you see, and takanot, enactments. And that is also why we have so many traditions, you see. And that is also why, besides traditions, people have chumrah, they have stringencies. But all of that will disappear. That means that in the end of time, there are no more svardim, there are no more Ashkenazim, you see. And there are no more um, Italians, because they also have a different and so on. It's all the same. We're all Jews. Oilam Haber is not a place where you have Svadim and Ashkenazim. There's no such thing. It's all one thing. A Jew is a Jew, no matter what he was when he was alive. You see? That's a very important idea. And by the way, uh, which is, I wanted to talk about why there are Svadim and Ashkenazim. In the end of time, one of the reasons you now understand something very important. Why is it you find that Svadim are intermarrying, I hate to use that word, with Ashkenazim? Or Ashkenazim are intermarrying with Svadim? You know, people now will mishadech, will marry off their kids to a Svad or an Ashkenaz. You see, why? What's happening? And the answer to that is because as we get closer to the Messianic era, there's basically no need for there to be different people. I mean, right now, there still is a need, but it's much less so, you see. And that is one of the reasons, historically or culturally, whatever, why Ashkenazim and Sfadim marry each other, you see, which is interesting. But uh, anyway, this is very important. The concept of what the Torah really is, the concept of the growth of the Torah, the concept that Adam Rishon had Torah, but in the form of one mitzvah, because he didn't need it in any other form, you see. And that's a very important idea. You now understand that all of it is Torah, you see. And each one requires a struggle, and each one, right, will bring down an incredible amount of awe, even if it's not a biblical commandment, even a rabbinical, and basically even a minhag, a, a, a halakha or a custom, that is, uh, you know, issued by the community. All of this is in many ways critical to ultimately do the entire tikkun. You see, very important idea that we have now explored and you now understand. And what will be also in the Messianic era, the difference between now and then, and why in the Messianic era <clears throat> there basically are no mitzvot, not that they won't be performed, but there is no struggle in any way to do them. You see. Okay. Any questions? Rabbi, I have one. Good. Elise Tabelli. So I oh, hi. many times many times you discussed this before in previous classes <clears throat> and yeah. you said that there was um you always said you were gonna do. You probably did do. I just probably missed that day. That the tikkun of the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim are different, and you mentioned that's why the the Holocaust was uh, specifically for the Ashkenazim more than the Sephardim because they, they yes. had a different tikkun. Yes. I heard you say you had a, a class for that, and I never had. I never got that one. 
So, well, guess what? I, want, I would like to give that class next week because it flows okay. from what I said. Why are there songs of Ashkenazim? Good. I'm glad. You know? Okay. So ready for next week. I said I knew that was the question. I've always heard we, you discussed it, that we were always going to do that. I probably did the class, and then maybe yeah? I did wow. that one. Okay. But I remember. You know, I'll, uh, yeah, Thank God that's, I remember. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's great, you know. Sure. Okay, so I'm glad we're going to, I'm finally going to get that answer. I've been waiting years. What was that? Our tikkunim are merging. The Svaradim and Ashkenazim are merging their tikkunim at when Mashiach comes. Well, the, the tiku, well, that's an interesting question. The, the tikkun is basically underlying is the same. It's to bring God back. Right. But you will understand actually next week that the tikkunim are the the ultimate tikkun is the same, but the path, the approach is different. Is it because the way we 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 pushed God away, we did it differently? <clears throat> yes, there, there yeah, are like, differences which I will explore next week. What was that? Can I attempt this? Because this is something of my own that I've always said that yeah. some people have to work from the inside out, and other people have to work from the outside in. Okay, that's true, but that's not the reason. Okay. You know, you know. You'll understand it much, much, I mean, next week you'll understand why there are Sfadim, Ashkenazim, you know, why, why are the Jews divided in so many different ways, you know? We'll understand that because it's an understanding of the different path to get to the same destination. Remember the saying, all roads lead to Rome? Well, same yeah. idea. All, all, all uh, mitzvot... Uh, lead to the same destination, which obviously is the that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God is the messianic era, obviously. But you'll understand why the what the different roads are. You know, next week will be a very enlightening Shia. So I learned that. Uh, Can you speak louder? Adam, hello. Yeah, God. I learned that when Hashem created Adam, he was down on earth, and then when Adam sinned, he went up one level. No, on the contrary. Before Adam sinned, he was in what's called Olam Yitzirah, which is one level above the physical. And when he sinned, he went down into the physical, and that was a world that was controlled by the Satan. The reverse. No, 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 but I'm saying that Hashem was closer to Adam, and then his Shekhinah went a level, it went up to Shemayim higher. Oh, you mean, yeah. Yeah, he, that, that, exactly, that's the Hester. Exactly. Okay, so then Cain made a sin, went up now two levels away. That's right, exactly. Um, Dor Hamabul and Dor went up again, and then um, what's that other thing? The Migdal Bavel went up again. It went yes. up seven levels. It wasn't until the time of Moshe Rabbeinu that it came down every the seven Abraham. weeks. It came down every week. Yeah, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov started yes. to bring it down. Moshe brought it down one level. It, it started to go the opposite direction. That's right. Okay, That's so right, yes. Adam was practically here, and then he left. Was Say that, that again? What? what was the left? <laughs> what was that? One guy. It was only one guy. He chased Hashem away. Yeah, but that one guy had every Nishoma in him. He wasn't just your average guy. 
uh, the Adam Arishan had the soul of all people within his soul. It was called the collective neshama. I understand, but he was still one guy. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, he was one. He was one consciousness. That's true. But his soul was awesome. Now, with so many people, it's hard to get everybody to do the tikkun. Well, you know, in a certain sense, God makes sure that even though everybody's so separate and spread out, everybody does the tikkun. Because remember, you have to remember one thing that we are connected to all the Jews. All Jews are really one Nishama. That's another shear. So in a certain sense, everybody's doing the job. You know, it's like an army. There are so many different ranks and positions and jobs. But they're all doing the same thing, and that is maintaining an army to battle. Same idea. All the Jews, even though they're spread all over the world, which they are, and they're different peoples, and they have different minhagim and all that, in the end, we're all connected at a, at a basic level, and we're all doing the tikkun, you see. Rabbi, I have a question. Is yeah. There two questions. One, is Mashiach ben Yosef living in Israel? Is he living in Israel now? Is he, is he in Israel? or Yeah, like, is he, does, is he in Israel, or is he outside in the Galu? Like, is he out of it? Or no, I'll tell you. I, I, because you see from the Gemara, uh, Eliyahu met certain people, uh, rather they, Chazal, certain, I think it was Rabbi Shubin Levi, he met Eliyahu, Eliyahu, and, uh, you know, he asked him, when is Mashiach coming? So Eliyahu said to him, well, why don't you go and ask him? And this was Pischei Roimi, at the gates of Rome. So you see that he was not in Israel. He was outside. Why? Because he's destined to overthrow Rome. So the Mashiach is born, and he even lives in the nation that he will overthrow in the end. You see. So therefore, we know, uh, therefore, that uh, he will overthrow Edom, which is Rome. You see, which is now, today, the United States. So if you really want to think about it, the Mashiach Ben Yosef, whoever he is, probably lives in the United States. In fact, uh, and, and uh, you know, and maybe, you know, um, in New York, who knows? You know, that's where he lives. And he's not only born here, he probably was raised here. Because that's the nation, ultimately, that he would overthrow or overcome. Just like Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was born in Egypt, but he was, he was raised in the house of Paroi. Because the house of Paroi is where he would overthrow it. You see? That's what God does. From the Midrash, you see, you know, from the Midrash, you see, that that's exactly what happens. <clears throat> you see? In fact, I will tell you the Midrash. There's a Midrash in what's called Pirkei de Rebbe uh, Eliezer. Uh, here's what it says. It says, at the end of time, at the end of time, okay, uh, it says that uh, Yishmuel, okay, will war, will, that the, uh, the Yishmuel, the Arabs, will conduct three wars. One of them, it says, is uh, against uh, the forest, that's what it says. Another is against the sea, and the third one, he will conduct uh, a war of terror against the great city of Rome. And then it says, 
is that um, that's what the Yishmoel, and then it says that there will be a tremendous war between Yishmoel and Edoim, and the Mashiach is going to watch that war, and then it says, Umishom, and as he watches that war, Yovoi Eretz Yisrael, he will go to Eretz Yisrael. So what do you see? Uh, you see that he's outside Eretz Yisrael, watching it, and he will come to Eretz Yisrael, you see. So eventually, of course, he will come to Eretz Yisrael. But initially, he's outside of Eretz Yisrael. Where? Probably, as the, as the uh, Midrash says, in the uh, great city of Rome. You see? So that's where he is. He's in America. How does Rome equal America? Oh, it's up. How does, how does Rome equal America? Well, follow the genealogy. In the Torah, there's Esav, right? Esav, the Torah says, is Edoim, which is the Edomites. Then the Gemara says, Edoim zu Roimi. Edoim is Rome. You see? Rome, who is Rome? Rome is Christianity. That's who Rome really is today. It's Christianity, which took over Rome, by the way, you know, uh, in, uh, in the early time by the Caesars uh, and so on. Uh, Christianity took over Rome and the whole Christian empire, the whole Roman empire became Christian. Christianity is Western civilization. And Western civilization is divided into three. It's divided into Russia, Europe, and the United States. You see, See, the United States is really the good part of Esau. But they are Esau. They are Edom, Rome. You see? So therefore, the great city of Rome would be what? Would be New York. And guess what? When it says that, that in the end of days that Yishmael will do what? Will conduct three wars of terror. And the last one is against the great city of Rome. Right? That means the Arabs, who are Yishmael, will conduct a war of terror against the great city of Rome. And if Rome is the United States, right, and the great city is New York, what was the thing that they conducted? Do you remember? 9-11. You got it. Exactly. 9-11. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And that was Ishmael, you know, Osama bin Laden, that uh, his group, the, uh, you know, the Arcade and all that, they destroyed the World Trade Center. And not only that, it was unbelievable what they did. Killed 3,000 people. But that was an attack on the great city of Rome. Yeah. Which is, ama- which is amazing when you think about it. That that Pirkei de Rebeleza, that Midrash, was written 2,000 years ago. And it predicted, you know, that this was what, what would happen. And that's exactly what happened. So I have a question. You know, first time in history. If sure, America is the good side of Esav. And America is the Toiv Sheba Esav, correct. And Russia is the bad Esav. Is that yes. why Trump and yes. uh, Putin are getting along because they're technically the same, not Neshama, but they're connected? <coughs> yeah. Well, if you think about it, they're really both Christian. Like I said, Christianity inherited the kingdom from Rome. And they're all, they're Russia. Russia's a Christian because it's the Russian Orthodox Church, right? right? Europe, obviously, is Christian. You know, it's Roman Catholic and all that. And America is Protestant, which is Christian. They're all Christian. That, that's the concept of Western civilization, as opposed to Asia. You see? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. my 
second question was, yeah, um, like, do we? Is there a time frame between Yosef and David? Like, do we know the time frame? We don't know the time frame, but obviously, uh, from the I mentioned from the Gemara to Yerushalmi, that says that the Beit Hamikdash has to be built before Mashiach ben David comes. The Gemara actually openly says that. Now that's a big job. That means the Mashiach ben Yosef has to do a lot of different jobs, you know. And I mentioned that he has four jobs, right? Right. That, that he has four jobs, if you recall. One of them, of course, is to bring the Galut back, you see. And that's what we're watching now, as I mentioned in my Shia that I gave Thursday night. So do you you know, and he also has to build the Beit HaMikdash. You think that Trump will get reelected because he needs still to needs them. to help Israel, like, so that we could get there? Yes. That's exactly what I said in the Shia. Yeah. By the way, you know how many people watched that Shia? It was the it last was, Thursday night Shia. What? It was a good. It was a good overall Shia about um, what's going on in the, the world today. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. But what was interesting about that Shia is I talked about the restart button. You remember that part? Remind me. Well, there was the concept of the Mabul. And God decided to restart mankind, so he killed it, he, just, he flooded the world, and he restarted it, because he realized that mankind will not change. And I said also that God now sees there's a tremendous amount of immorality that will not change. So God pressed the restart button again. And what is that? The restart button is the redemption itself. And it's starting. That's why you see... This, and I, I just listen to the shir again, you know. You see the incredible things happening that never happened before. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Trump is the most reviled, hated president in American history, you know. They don't acknowledge a single thing that he does. <coughs> Not only that, he has done unbelievable things, probably more than any other president before him, you know, and it's never acknowledged. If anything, it's denied. And it shows you how much they hate him because they're willing to put a guy who's obviously senile to be the president. How could you do that? How can a man like this run the country? In fact, I just heard something very interesting. Uh, that they, have, they found the communique of Osama bin Laden. Okay? And you know what he said? Now listen to this. He said that what he was thinking... Before, you know, uh, be besides bombing the World Trade Center, he was thinking of maybe trying to assassinate Obama. You know? Why? That's what he was thinking, yeah. He wanted to assassinate the President of the United States at that time, which was Obama, right? But you have to hear the reason. Why? The reason for that is because if Obama would die, then Joe Biden, the Vice President, would become President. And Obama said, and, 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 and uh, uh, Bin Laden said, right, that if Obama, uh, excuse me, if Joe Biden becomes president, he's incompetent to be president. He will destroy the United States. You hear what he said? That's crazy. It is. But they ha I heard that communique. That they, they have that communique. I mean, whatever, however it was, you know, the message that he gave. Can you believe this? That he himself 
Osama bin Laden realize that Joe Biden is completely incompetent? And this was in 2011 when he died. You know? It's incredible. I have a question. You said that the Mashiach has to live with the nation that he's going to destroy. So Moshe lived in the palace of Paro. Do you think that the Mashiach is living in the White House? Uh, I, I, you know, I don't see it in the White House, but I do see it in the American culture. I mean, the, the, you know, the reason is because, look, the White House is a presidency. You know, there, there's no... There's no how, you know, in Paro's house, he was the king or whatever, and, you know, he had kids, and his, uh, he obviously had a sister, Basia. You know, you can have kids running uh, of other people in the... Uh, in the palace, but in the White House, it's basically only it's only a residence for the president. Everybody else in the White House works there, you know. So, you know, it's obviously it doesn't mean that, you know. But it, what it does mean is that he's probably he's born into the culture of America. What does that you see? mean? Well, he's an American. Okay. Means means he thoroughly understands the values of America. He's very much acquainted with America. And that's what he overthrows, you see? And you see that from the Midrash. Besides from the model of uh, Egypt, which is always the model for the Gula. But like I said, where it says that he will watch as Edoim, as Rome and Yishmuel fight each other, and from there he will go to Eretz Israel. Well, the question then is, what does from there mean? Like, where is he? And the answer is that, you know, He's outside of Eretz Israel, you know, and once he's outside, then he's obviously in Rome because that's what he's going to ultimately overthrow. You see. He's probably in Lakewood, Rabbi. Why would he be in Lakewood? Maybe he's in Brooklyn. <laughs> Thinks it's you. What? You, you, Rabbi. Me. You know, I got such a long way to be a Mashiach. <laughs> you know, no. Somebody that you don't know, and every minute he's going to get more famous. Correct. That's right. Okay, Which Rab- is what I mentioned. Rabbi, uh, yes. Yeah, go ahead. I yeah. Also, I was telling, I was telling my husband earlier that I think it's also from Brooklyn, and he asked me, "What's your reasoning?" I said, "Because there's so many political figures." of source of Tum'ah that come from Brooklyn, that it must be there's a very big sense of holiness to counteract it for a balance. Maybe. Yeah, it's a good idea. Maybe. Maybe he lives in Brooklyn. Because if you look, Bernie Sanders, uh, you have uh, Fauci, you have Epstein, you have all these bad figures all came from Brooklyn. Who, Fauci came from Brooklyn? Fauci came from Brooklyn. Oh, he did? Wow. came from, from Brooklyn. Uh, Wiener came from Brooklyn. Bernie Sanders. Um, yeah, I know. He came from, Brooklyn. came from Brooklyn. Woody Allen came from Brooklyn. Um, I would take a guess. Yeah. Weinstein may have come from Brooklyn. All these sex offenders came from Brooklyn. Oh, it, it's... Let's get out of Brooklyn. Hello. Hey, well, Rabbi, so I have a question for you. So yeah? In your, in your, in your shiur that you posted... You said that um, you feel like America still needs to get punished another another round for the Jews. Yes, to up. that's right. Right. So, 
So, okay, two questions. One, uh, what do you yeah? What do you feel? Does is there any simanim in the Ma'amar Hageula that says what that punishment could be, or do you have any inclinations what it might be? A, and B. Um, when the punishment does come, what do you recommend us doing so that we could not be affected by it and um, stay grounded during it? Well, you have to remember one thing. <clears throat> I mean, first of all, the punishment is now happening because it's me the connected me. Though, what, what did the flood do, by the way? It destroyed civilization, correct? Yeah. And how did it do it? It was a flood, water, right? How does water kill people? Drown, right? Yeah. When people drown, how do they die? They asphyxiate. They can't breathe, yeah. right? Yeah. What happens is that if a person is underwater, he can't breathe, but his diaphragm doesn't allow him not to breathe. It would automatically open up his mouth, and there's no way he could stop it. And then he, what will happen is water will go into his lungs, and therefore water, once it's in his lungs, will not allow oxygen to go into his lungs, and therefore he will die, because there's no oxygen to the brain. That's called asphyxiation, yes? Yes. What does COVID-19 do? Breathe. Same thing. Breathe. There you are. It's a breathing disorder. I mean, it, 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 they, you know, they recognize it does other harm also, uh, but ultimately, it's a breathing disorder. It attacks the lungs. And therefore, a person dies because he's short of breath. That's its main way of killing. That's incredible how similar that is. So what God is doing, he's destroying America in the same way. Instead of a flood, it's called COVID-19. You see? Yes. But the majority of the people, look, he doesn't want to destroy the planet. What he is doing, however, is, uh, you know, is pahad mavis, which I had mentioned. Right. That the real way he's doing it is, is fear of death. Although there are a lot of people that are dying, you know, and so on. But nowhere near what could have happened, for instance, in the Spanish flu, right? You had between 50 and 100 million people that died. Could you believe this? Imagine that. And there were much less people on the earth than there is now. COVID-19 is the punishment that can destroy a civilization, which it's doing. No jobs, right? People are afraid to go out, you know. And if that wasn't enough, that's going to destroy a civilization. All of a sudden, you have the black riots. That's destroying America. And I mentioned that in my shir. That's also part of the punishment that God is using. Because in the end, God rules by midokineged mido. Uh, measure for measure. In other words, God says, you want to destroy my civilization, my world, I will destroy yours. Not totally, but I will bring a destruction. And we look, look, it's happening all over America. Right? It's anarchy. You know? So really, that's, that is, the, you are watching the punishment of America and really the entire world. You see, so you're, you, we, we are in the punishment, you see. We're in the punishment. Okay, so then, Correct. So, so just to counteract it or to keep yourself grounded with, you know, this, Torah, <clears throat> I find Torah learning being my, my you know, my light, my, it just, yes. 
my yeah. soul very, very yes. calm. So, it, like that, I, is that what Hashem really wants of us? Yes. The best way to protect yourself, right, is one, <clears throat> is do not speak Lashon Hara, because that will invite a Kitrug. You don't want to do that. So be very careful how you speak about other people. In fact, it's even better not to speak about other people. You know? And the, the second thing, of course, is to become more spiritual. You know? That's the, and, and those are the best ways, you know, to, to really to uh, uh, bring, bring the uh, spirituality, you know, in, in the world, you know? You know, just uh, cling greater to Judaism. You know? And also a big issue is also, I believe, sniyot, modesty. I think it's very important for, especially women, because that's the main issue, is for women to dress modestly. You know? Very important. I found that when I used to give shurim to the Svadim, to the Syrians for many years, you know, in all the classes that I gave, I found many times, not everybody, but... Oh, you know, women would come in, you know, really with uh, immodest dress. wasn't so much the re- the revealing part, but they walked in with very tight garments, and I found that, uh, unfortunately, to be a, a lot. You know, uh, so that is a very important idea to dress modestly. You can be stylish; that's fine, but it has to be modest. You know, that's what I found. So I think that's also very important. You know, because immodesty, immodesty is one of the preachers, it's called preachers or preachut. That was one of the things, and that's amoral. That was one of the things in the Mabu. People were incredibly amoral, you know. And the preachut is an immorality. So it would be very important to be very careful in that area. You see? 